Every person standing here in this room is living on the brink of financial ruin. You all have debts that you can't pay off. If you do not wish to participate, then please let us know at this time. You will be playing red light, green light. The thing we did as the kids on the playground? a handsome cash prize. It'll be dangerous. Stick with the strongest. That's the only way you live. All those games are easy to learn. I'll make sure that you win. What will you do? Whatever it takes. The player who refuses to play will be eliminated. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director. I'm probably best known for casting Criminal Minds, and I may have some exciting news coming up, but I can't break that here. But anyway, my podcast is sort of a niche. It's very niche. I have a very wonderful podcast in the true crime space called Real Crime Profile, and a lot of people there like to hear me wax on about crime shows, stuff like that. But then I also have my foot in the other world of entertainment, where I know a lot of actors and writers and and producers and creative folks. In fact, there's one right here with me today. He's so creative. I I just can't even I can't even tell you how amazing he is and uh, I'm going to shout his name far and wide so that more people will know but I'm being joined today by actor producer advocate voiceover extraordinaire Cinnabon advocate. We're going to get into the whole Cinnabon of it all. I literally had to pull him out of his closet this morning, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome, Eddie Hong. Hi. Hello, everyone. How are you? Now, I, I got to say, your hair is rocking. You have like the half shaved side, the long side. You look very relevant, yet retroactively 80s at the same time. What's happening with your hair? I mean, this has been, my partner was the one responsible for this idea. It it pretty much came right before the pandemic happened and it definitely accelerated, which is just basically like, just grow your hair out and uh-huh. we'll, we'll cut it just, you know, go to the side. And, and I mean, it does need a shave now because usually the sides are shaved, but uh-huh. then like this kept, you know, at the longest it's ever been is like this hair was down to like here. Uh-huh. Like, but then the sides would be shaved so it was like 
at some point someone joked that I looked like Skrillex, like that, you know, anyone's familiar with that guy or Gary Oldman from the fifth. Yes. Yeah. So I've gotten comparisons. It's totally fine. You know, so I've been keeping this hair for a while now and I enjoy it. I it's, it's definitely pandemic inspired. I've seen other few guys also doing it too. I think the pandemic has got a lot of oh. all sorts of things. So oh, yeah. last time I saw you, I had red hair. <laughs> no, it is definitely not. Yeah. But you know, hair, I mean, not just to tangent for a second, hair is a very, very big deal for actors because you invest just hundreds and hundreds of dollars in pictures and your hair mm-hmm. better look like that when you walk in the audition door. And, and I just remember when I was an actor and I stopped acting, I was like, Oh my God, thank God I can cut my hair any way I want to. I don't have to worry about my agent weighing in on it or, you know, replacing my headshots and stuff. So you must've had to replace your pictures because this is very different hair for you. It's still, I mean, like they, I have current ones that reflect this now, but then it's like, my agent was still like, you know, we still have your other ones because you, you know, you're Asian. So you're still going to look like your old headshots from five years ago. So if casting or if production wants you to cut your hair, it's fine because they have other pictures to go by. Like, what does Edward look like with shorter hair? Right. So they have that. So they're like, you know, so they're like saying at this point, you could probably update your headshots. Oh, maybe three, four years from now, maybe when you look a little bit older. Because right. right now you're still in this zone for some, quite some time. Right. So I was like, all right, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they they did say that the ones I have now, they're like, oh, cool. So then I've had a lot of like very interesting either gangster poser kind of types or like hackers yeah. or like just schlubs, just absolutely yeah, yeah. schlubs, which yeah. is great. Because empty there are a lot boxes, of- empty Red Bull cans around you kind of. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's so much that we want to talk about. You are Asian, as you have said. Am I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you are an advocate for many things. I don't even know where to start. Let's start with Squid, Squid Game, because I know okay. a lot of the people out there, my one or two listeners, who probably were really into Squid Game <laughs> because it was bloody, it was twisty. So I only watched the first episode and I'm like, I'm out. I don't think I can go this down this route. But it, it seemed very intense and you're very gory. And tell us about what Squid Game was about. It's funny you stopped after the first episode because it gets so much more depressing after that. It's so mm. much more violent. But the thing is, like, a lot of American viewers who are not used to, like, let's say East Asian cinema would consider this like, holy crap, this is pretty extreme. But, like, for those who are more familiar with the cinema that is offered in, like, Japan and Korea especially, it's pretty tame. Yeah, Because the thing about like a lot of, especially Korean cinema is uh, what the industry there is like, is that they don't really have restrictions. Like they can, you can, they would give financing to almost anything. Like it doesn't matter how taboo or how controversial they'll, they'll make it. Uh-huh. So there has been, especially since I think old boy, when that movie came out back in 2003, that kind of like launched like this renaissance of just like creativity and ideas and all of these repressed thoughts and topics that people always wanted to talk about. It just, it was, it was a free for all. And so, and I think that's no surprise why so many of their films gets remade by Hollywood because Hollywood is starving for ideas. They just, they're like, we don't have any ideas. What can we do? Mm -hmm. So they look towards East Asia in terms of like, Oh, look at that. Look at all the creativity and look at all the things they're doing. Yeah. And they're going to do it here because even with Squid Game, 
there are now talks of like trying to remake that. They want to bring that to the American viewers, even though it's already technically brought by to the American viewers. Sure. But they want to have like an Americanized version of that. So what would that look like? The thing is, it's redundant because it's been done many times. Like, I think the most relevant one for American viewers is Hunger Games. Yeah. It's kind of like Hunger Games. And yeah. that's what this was compared to. It was basically Hunger Games. It was basically like you have desperate people trying to fight for survival, which is whether it be money or whether it be a prize or whether it be like some sort of like elevated status in life. Like it's been around, this idea has been around for like decades. It's mm. not new. It's yeah, just it's like, true. I think one of the reasons why Squid Game caught on so quickly was that, you know, it was, it was pandemic times. It was just like, you know, we were in a very, this, the past two years have been very challenging for many of us. Some more than others, especially those who are historically underrepresented, especially the Black community. Like, it was especially trying during these times. And so I think the Squid Game kind of like tapped into that kind of, what do you call it, zeitgeist? Where it was just mm-hmm. like this feeling that we had, like, you know, it was funny that Hollywood was trying to be like, okay, let's have some more feel-good movies, you know, because pandemic is really, you know, depressing for everyone. And then Squid Game came along and everyone was like, yes, we want to be reminded how sucky everyone's lives are. So I think that's why it exploded the way it did. But I know it especially did so for Korea and for my family, like all my family lives in Korea. And so the reason why I tapped into the Korean market so well was that when they talk about like, so, so I know you have, so the general idea of Squid Game is that it taps into how much debt people has, people have in Korea and everywhere, you know, the whole world has debt in terms of whether it's student loans or like, you know, things you need to pay out for. But in Korea, it's especially bad. Like there's a huge number of the population that has like, they owe some large amount of money, whether it be to, uh, to loan sharks or to real estate or to anything. Like there, so there's one character in there who owes like over three million dollars to the U.S. to the Korean government because he wasn't able to pay off his loans, and so and so that kind of thing really tapped into a lot of people I knew who live in Korea, where they're like, yeah, I have an enormous amount of debt, and if there was an actual split game, like it would not be far off from reality where I might actually want to do that. Mm-hmm. I might actually want to participate, even though you know that people are gonna die whether through outside forces or whether you actually have to kill them, like it's not far from that reality. And so not just for Korea, but then like the whole world, especially like with uh, when everything was shutting down in the US and so many people were out of jobs, like everyone was desperate. So I think Squid Game was just kind of like a very depressing escape into that and just being like, you know, just some sort of alternate reality where we kind of fantasize like, you know, what if, you know, and so I remember watching with my partner and just being like, she would ask me like, would you do that? Would you participate? And I think I, my, my first response was like, yes, I would, I would participate in that. And then I watched the show and I'm like, well, all right, maybe I have second doubt, second guesses now because holy crap, it, it goes through some pretty, like there's a, there's the sixth episode that everyone coins as like, you watch that episode and not many people will come out of it unscathed i think most people i saw like cry their eyes out watching that episode because it wasn't bloody and that was the thing that made it even harder it wasn't violent that episode was probably the least violent of them but in terms of like what these people did to each other 
yeah. like in terms of like the backstabbing and people that you thought would be like, you know, they're going to help this person out because he's been nothing but a good person and only to then betray that person, which then kind of ties into what we've seen in other cinema forms, like, you know, the purest and the most naive and the most innocent are the ones who will die first. Right. Like, and that's what happens in Squid Game. Right. So uh, I think that's all that factors combined, like con contributed to like, you know, this explosion and why so many people were obsessed with the show. Yeah, I mean, listening to you talk, even though I haven't seen more than the first episode, you know, I definitely got a hit of this collective trauma that, you know, the world has been under and it's sort of acting out in front of us in Squid Game, you know, the collective selfishness of some during the pandemic, um, the collective, all kinds of things, you know, what will you do for your fellow man and what will you do for yes. yourself? And also just the the materialism of it all, like, can can't we just downsize? Like, can't we just be you know be minimal and not need so many things? Some you know in some situations, um, it just it raises just a lot of really interesting questions. Yeah, you're 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 right about that. I mean, like it also came at a time when the pandemic, everyone was very like the ones who profited the most from the pandemic is like clearly like we have like Amazon, Tesla, like these companies, like the billionaires of that company, like only just like doubled their value over the oh, pandemic. God. So yeah, I think it was, and that, and that's what Squid Game did touch upon. And spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, basically it does touch upon heavily that the ones who control the games were the billionaires, were the ones in the top one percent of the world. And so when they show the true power players of the Squid Game, it was the billionaires, like in that they came from America, India, China, and they were the ones because they were bored. They were bored, bored. and they wanted to yeah. see what poor people did do to each other. And oh, that's something that like, I think that's when it hit upon that central theme. I think people found more relevance to the Squid Game because that's kind of what's happening now. It's like, you know, all the issues we face in the world, like even like environmentalism, like, you know, we always talk about like, oh, we need to recycle, we need to do this. And yes, we do need to recycle. We do need to like do better or like in terms of how we uh, save and that kind of thing. But the biggest damage that will ever be done will be the billionaires. Like, will be like, right. when you see like toxic oil spill that just like, it's only because the billionaires decided, you know, we're going to skimp on money for protection. We're going to skimp on like, you know, upgrading our safety, our upgrading our resources. And all of this crap happens. And it's like, well, that's not our fault as a citizen. That's their fault. But who's to stop them? I think so. also a Squid Game taps into sort of like these, these, deeply held um, archetypes that go all the way back to the Romans. The gladiators. The like, gladiators, you know, like, yeah. the emperors and empresses watching a coliseum full of poor schmoes, you know, <laughs> trying mm -hmm. to kill each other with, yeah. you know, their bare hands and everything. And it's just that distance and that entertainment quality of the them and it's not us. And I think that's that also is the problem with Squid Game. It was great in terms of what it was there and like like you there were a lot of people who just chose not to watch it because unfortunately despite the social commentary that this show provide a lot of people watched it because it was it tapped into the gladiator aspect the violence the like because there was a lot of violence there was a like you know in terms of how these people died so there will always be this morbid fascination with violence that us as humans will always have and it will never go away i think this gladiator thing you know the ancient romans they did that and we'll, it'll be with us till the end of time. 
And humorized violence, at least from what I saw, there was a great deal of sort of dark, weird comedy, a comic aspect to it that I think people did really enjoy. You know, yeah. the weird baby doll and all whatever, all God knows what came next, but the sort of a sarcasm to the violence yes. in some ways. So where I live, one minute it's raining and the next minute it's 80 degrees and the trees and plants in my yard start going crazy, which makes my nose, throat and eyes go crazy with all the pollen. But luckily for me, I have gotten relief from the good folks at Plantiva and their natural proprietary formulation of herbal extracts called Allerdx. I mean, I was sneezing and sniffling about to go into a Zoom meeting but I took an Aller DX and in 10 minutes, I had immediate relief. I mean, it was really something. So Plantiva is a family-run business and I have had the pleasure of meeting the Morrisseys, Dr. Steven and his wife, Jenny. And let me tell you, they are the real deal. I am really enjoying the products that they've had me sample. So you can try them yourself. Go to plantiva.com slash killercasting for your exclusive discount code. Your role in Squid Game, can you just tell people what you did and then what sort of has come from that? I just, I was just one of the, the many of the English dub actors for it. And, and back in, when we did it last May, at that time, it was just, it felt like another dub job. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of K-dramas that were starting to come in and Netflix and a lot of companies that was working for Netflix were trying to be more inclusive about casting, about when it comes to the English dub actors. And trying to be like, okay, so if this is a Korean show, let's get as many Korean voiceover actors mm-hmm. to do the English dubbing. Let's actually try to change the mindset of that. So that's how I got brought on board. And our director, Madeline Pyle, was very keen about like, you know, hiring as many Asian Americans, Korean Americans to be part of this because it's like, this is about Korea. This is about this. So why not have Korean actors be part of it? And so when I did it, it was just, it, it was just another job. We weren't thinking much of it. Mm-hmm. I did, however, notice, and it was something that Madeline commented as we were recording it, even before the show was even finished. Like we saw like the green screen. We saw like it wasn't quite finished. There was some of the sets weren't quite done yet. So we had to provide dubbing for like the unfinished product. So it was fascinating to see something that wasn't even done yet. Like it was like usually when you dub something, you see it well ahead of time. You're like, oh, it's already done. You just need to, we just need to provide the English dubbing for it. And so when we were doing it, I was like, the show looks like it could do really well. Like, I just have a feeling. And so when the show came out and then uh, obviously the attention that it got, the other side, uh, unintended effect was the attention it brought to the dub actors. It brought attention to the, all of the actors and everyone was just like obsessed with like, who are all the actors involved in this? And so the dub actors also got attention from that. And so what it did uh, in terms of what it did for, I guess, especially the dubbing world is that it brought a lot of attention to it, both good and bad. A lot of discussion about like, you know, the value of dubbing, you know, who needs dubbing, blah, blah, blah. And I think in some ways it did make me happy because it was like the fact that there were people who are very fierce about subtitling. And it's like, it's better to watch it in its original form. 
And I'm very much in, you know, I have, I, I believe in both sides where it's like, there is value for sure watching it into original language and being okay to read subtitles. Right. But I also understand there are people who are dyslexic or people who it's not, it's too much of an effort to read the subtitles. Not enjoyable for them. Yeah. So dubbing has become very valued form. And so when the statistics came out from Netflix in terms of how many people not only watched Squid Game, but how many people watched it in its dubbed form, Let's see. So Squid Game had over a billion views and about, <laughs> and about 300 million of its viewers, 300, 400 million of its views watched it only in dub. That's a lot of eyes. That's a lot of people who are watching it only through dubbing. And so I think because of that, what Netflix is now doing is that they bought a crap ton of more Korean drama content. And now for in this year, it's not just Netflix doing it. Disney Plus is getting in on the game. The mouse wants in. Mm-hmm. So Disney, I think they're about to unleash 15 K-dramas this year on Disney Plus. Mm. So they are bringing their content in. So I think there's been a lot of attention on that. And also not just on Korean content. There's been an explosion of Latino American TV shows and European shows. Um, absolutely. Nordic noir, I bet. I get a lot of Nordic drama for sure. Yeah, I've seen a, a, a surprising number of like Turkish TV shows that's been on Netflix. Like there's been a lot coming in. And so I think this is good. I think it's just like, it, it, I think it's just like people interested in international content, which I think is good because it's like, I think we need to have more exposure to the cinema that's provided in other countries as opposed to just what U.S. provides, because I think for a long time, for like decades and decades that like, you know, none of the other international movies matter. It was just American movies that matter. Right and now, I think the level, the, the status quo has kind of been shifted where it's like all of this matters. Like, you know, all of these movies are awesome. And so it's like you do yourself a disservice as a movie fan or a movie critic if you only watch country uh, movies from just one country. Oh yeah, it's given a platform to all kinds of actors that you'd never known before. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so important. Um, you know, I went on a jag watching a whole bunch of French content where I saw Call My Agent and Lupin and you know, all kinds of things. And and it just it's just wonderful. I have to say to my two listeners listening, I, I like to call you Marty and Sam. Um uh, Marty and Sam, I actually never listen to the dubbed because um for one thing i like to hear the actors you know original voices and i also like to hear the uh, the background noise the noise of a city the noise of you know what's going on in the environment and um as a former actor i just love to read the lines um i don't know why i just i can read very very fast and i just love to read the lines and then hear what the actor did with the line it's just something that i enjoy i certainly am glad that that you're working as hard as you are but what can and did the the the, um the asian vo list come from this experience it's it's not a it's it's not quite the asian vo list it started off in that community first it's it encompassed all people of color Okay. So the PG, so the PGM VO list, so what PGM stands for is people of global majority. It's a term that I started using much more frequently in the past year. And global majority has become, it's not the replacement to anything, but it's an alternative to saying people of color. Mm-hmm. And so it was first coined in the University of Miami. And global majority comes where it's like, if you were to look at the world, the majority of the world are not 
white European centric Christians. It's not that. It's the it's the Chinese, the Indians, the 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 African Americans, the Black, the Latino, Latino American. They are the true global majority of the world. And so people of color, while you know everyone understands what it means, is that because they use the word color, it still denotes that white is the universal standard. Yes. Where like that's yes. what the because tech because it uh, uh, because if you were to look at it technically white is a color so to say people of color yes it's like it doesn't make any sense so global majority is something that we decided to use for our database it's it, it did start off as the BIPOC voiceover list but then I think over as time went on there has been a lot of like growing sentiment that BIPOC is not exactly a good or accurate thing to use even though it has good intentions. Because it did start with the Black Lives Matter movement to focus on the Black and Indigenous first. But I think the problem with that is that it didn't, it, like, it puts everyone else aside. So then, for example, like the Latino American community, where it's like, no, their value, their issues are very much important. But I think, like, by having just like the Latino also be part of POC and then B and the B and the I just being focused first, there has been confusion that BIPOC doesn't mean those other people color it just means black or indigenous and so with all of this confusing terminology yeah. and everyone's like i don't know what the heck it means that's why global majority started becoming a thing where it's like it's we know that the issues pre uh, presented to the indigenous and black community are severe there's no denying that but at the same time it doesn't mean that we need to like put all the other ethnic folks under the bus where it's like oh they're completely disregarded now, that being said, uh, there has to be acknowledgement that, for example, with like the East Asian community, mm -hmm. while they are not white, they do experience white privilege. They do it because lighter skin, you know, they have more power, they have more money and that kind of thing. And so it has to be acknowledged that there is like within each of these communities, some experience more privilege than others. Although there is backlash against that group of people, as you well know. Yes. And, yes. and so I think. And then what gets really ugly with that kind of discourse, the, especially with the South Asian hate, is that what the news report, like what we see in the news, and unfortunately they focus a lot on the, with the Asian hate crimes, they focus on a lot of the perpetrators being black. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, when we see it on the news, it feeds into this unfortunate old discourse of like this whole black and Asian hatred. And that's been going around since always but like especially you know it really showed its ugly head during the the los angeles riots back in 92 when it was like you know people are like oh the koreans hate the blacks and the blacks hate the koreans you know that that's always been there and so i think this unfortunately kind of brought that back into it again i see a lot of the older asian folks people that i know who were like saying the worst the most ugliest racist things about black folks and i'm like look i know that's what the news is showing but also have to realize that we are dealing with, a, you know, the kind of world where news is sensationalized, mm -hmm. where they're only going to just show that they're not going to show the other stories because they know that they're going to show the stories that's going to generate views. And clicks. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we as people in the entertainment industry, you know, we're constantly struggling to 
redefine. It's not about being woke and being, you know, politically correct and, and trying to control language, but we're just constantly trying to understand how to best respect each other, how to best name people in a way that they feel seen, but not stereotyped. And, and, you know, we're in casting, you know, we're constantly trying to understand even just how to write a breakdown. You know, yeah, and right. ask for authenticity. Um, you know, we've gone from calling, you know, this this character is Hispanic. Nope, it's Latinx. Nope, yeah. it's this, you know. So we're just trying to understand and help people feel included and do it in the right way possible. Or, you know, are we calling somebody, you know, bi, queer, pan, you know, it's yes. and I know people kind of who aren't in our industry just like roll their eyes and like, oh my God, this is so complicated. But it's just trying to understand and keep the conversation going, clarify and being more and more specific. I think, and this is where it's like, it is, it can be rather confusing because there's so many acronyms. There's so many things to know, especially just like, like just this recent Pride Month, it was just like learning terminology that I never knew. And I didn't like, for example, knowing that in the LGBTQI plus, like I was curious about the plus, like how many more identified oh, facts are there? Yeah. And I think someone said, as, and I looked it up there, as of right now, there is 42 identifying terms for the LGBTQ. And I'm like, 42, holy moly, that's a lot. Um, But I think, I think that this, the conversation and that does tie into the entertainment industry is that, you know, some factors will say like, oh, we are becoming quote unquote too woke, too sensitive to what is the term snowflake. Yes. Some, we can have the argument with that, but I think if anything, the generation Z, this generation, the, the youth of our times right now, is that now there are more ways to identify oneself. Mm-hmm. There are more ways to feel like, okay, I am part of this. When before with our parents' generations or even before that, they had nothing to go by. Like, you know, whatever discomfort you're feeling as whatever you felt, like there was nothing to, you know, there was no community for that. And yeah. so now there is a community for that. And so I think what we saw with the pandemic is just like this this divide where I think some can argue that it's bad that there's a bigger divide more so than ever in terms of like how we identify things where on one side of the fact that we have, I would like to say more traditionalist mindset of just like that. There's no need for these labels. There's no need for these kind of things. And the other side being that there is value in like respecting that and respecting. Mm -hmm. And so not just with race, but also we see it, even with like uh, with the whole discourse of J.K. Rowling, like, you know, the whole, the turf thing, the whole like the trans community thing. It's like, there are people who, you know, I will never identify. I don't, I'm only what a cis heterogender dude. So it's like, I don't know what a trans person would go through. So it's like in any discussion I have about that it cannot be done by me. It has to be done by of that community. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, you like, you know, anyone who isn't of that, whether you are just a white cis hetero dude or, you know, just whatever, but that if you make a mistake and I know it's hard, especially in this day and age when, you know, everyone's worried to be, you know, what's the word, cancel culture, that you're going to be canceled for mm-hmm. doing that. You're only canceled. Actually, the thing is, we don't like people that, you know, we uh, people thought they canceled, for example, like Louis CK and all that kind of stuff. They're still around. They're still doing tours. They're still they still got a mic. They still got a platform. So it's like when people are like, oh, Gina Carano got canceled for her thing and start, you know, and now she's not part of Mandalorian. Well, she's still acting. She still has a platform. The only time you're truly canceled is like you can no longer work whatsoever. 
Like there's no way. Because you're in prison because yeah. you hurt somebody. Yeah. Because you sexually assaulted somebody. So that's like, but then even then, like, you know, the clearest, most evident example being like Harvey Weinstein, for example. Um, but the thing that I'm worried about is that I think our society always has amnesia. So I worry that let's say 20 years from now, they'll be out of jail. He'll write some, there'll be some movie about his like, He's like, you know, he's coming to terms and who he is now. And there's going to be a movie made about him. And the world will forget what he did. Right. And I think that is what our society is. We forget. We forget the terrible things, you know, these people have done because it's like, oh, because they did something awesome now. And so that's why I'm like, that's why I'm like, I don't think cancel culture exists because no one truly has been canceled. No one truly has been restricted that they couldn't speak anymore. All right, and uh, there we have it. That is part one of Lisa's chat with the amazing Eddie Hong. Sadly, I couldn't be there. I was fascinated to hear it back, but uh, don't you hate it when work gets in the life of, uh, in the way of your life? <laughs> work gets in the way of your podcast. That's life. Uh, but don't go back. We'll be right away with part two of Eddie Hong dropping very soon. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at choicevoiceproductions.com. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends, Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting, out.